Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Christian Lang, Professor and Chair of Arabic and Islamic Studies at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, about his wonderful book, Paradise and Hell in Islamic Traditions, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Professor Lang's Paradise and Hell in Islamic Traditions was recently awarded the British-Kuwaiti Friendship Society's Book Prize, and it presents a rich, challenging, and meticulous account of how Muslims have conceptualized the spiritual world across the centuries. With great perspicacity, the author explores Sunni and Shi'i views on his topic, as well as Sufi and mystical understandings with attention to contrast and similarity amongst the schools of thought that he studies. In order to disrupt assumptions about popular conceptions, Professor Lang frequently employs the term otherworld instead of perhaps more expected terms like afterlife. On this note, one of the arguments the author presents throughout the monograph, based on his extensive research, is that Islamic traditions have often articulated this other world as something connected to the material world, even if it is also transcendent in important ways. Thus, one of the book's many strengths is its ability to present challenging paradoxes in ways that are accessible, while grounded in textual tradition. In addition to drawing upon numerous textual canons, including Quran and Hadith, Professor Lang also makes effective use of art as well as modern data analysis in order to observe things like how many times a keyword for paradise or hell appears in various texts. And in order to complement his lucid yet erudite writing, the author includes tables and images to help guide the reader. The organization of the book, moreover, with its clear subsections and chapter themes, will prove helpful for educators and researchers looking to explore particular facets of the book's topic, even if the arrangement of the book allows for it to naturally build on its previous sections. This engaging monograph will likely interest scholars and teachers of classical Islamic thought, soteriology, textual hermeneutics, and art history, among other areas. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Christian Lang. Greetings, Christian. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, hi, Elliot. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you about this book. It touches on so many different things, so we'll have a chance to discuss a few of them. Uh, so one of the things we like to do at New Books in Islamic Studies is begin by asking authors how you got interested in the field. So how did you get interested in Islamic studies? Well, yes, with pleasure. That's uh, That's a question that you and other people in the field, I guess, get all the time. So I'm <laughs> I'm used to the question. I answer answer it with um, pleasure, even though I find myself answering it in different ways. So apparently I haven't totally figured it out myself. But the one thing that I say always is that I came to Islamic studies with pretty much a clean slate. Um, I was I had no background whatsoever in, in Islam or no uh, oriental languages in, in high school or as a teenager. So uh, it really started um, when I went to Tübingen for my undergraduate studies in the in the 90s and met some amazing um, scholars and mentors who got me into the field. So I started with, with philosophy, really, and comparative religion and law, uh, criminal law in particular, 
And then because Tübingen at that time was such a great place to do Islamic studies, uh, to learn Arabic and Persian and other languages, I, I, I caught the bug and never looked back. Uh-huh. And so as you progressed and went through your graduate studies and did graduate work, who are some particularly influential mentors or particularly influential um, pieces of scholarship that you encountered? Yeah, it's a long list, um, but I would have to start with the people in, in Tübingen. Um, there were uh, four people that influenced me uh, deeply, I think. Uh, Heinz Halm, the historian of uh, the Fatimids and, 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 and other dynasties, who uh, I admired very much for his ability um, to tell a good story. If you read his books on the Fatimids, I mean, it's, it's really just a great pleasure to, to read these books. Um, now, luckily, translated into English. Then there was Manfred Ullmann, the uh, the Arabist, um, who was the compiler, author of, of this amazing um, dictionary, Svaterbuch uh, der klassischen arabischen Schriftsprache. And then uh, Heinz Gauber, an Iranianist and art historian who really had a very broad vision of the field, uh, invited me to Syria and Iran and in many places. I, I, I owe him a great deal. And then there was Josef von Es who was probably the most formative influence then, who also got me into a graduate school at Harvard. I mean, he was the one who recommended I go to study in the U.S. And then in the U.S., there's another um, uh, quadrum virate of, of, of supervisors uh, to whom I'm indebted, and that is uh, Bill Graham, my supervisor at Harvard, um, who introduced me to many things, among them the uh, the aesthetics of the Quran, I suppose. There was uh, Roy Mutahede, who really... Um, kindled my interest in, in social history and, and the, the, the nexus between social and religious history. Um, Wheeler Thaxton for um, Persian literature, I admire his uh, skills as a translator and, and, and a philologist greatly. And then last but not least, Barbara Johansen, who supervised the last part of my uh, PhD dissertation, which became a book in 2008 and was really very much about Islamic law. But it was also, but also uh, the starting point uh, uh, for my current interest in Islamic eschatology. Well, that's that's a really rich background of of networks, and I think also it, you know that kind of genealogy comes through in the book too, with just the really different kinds of references that you cite and ideas you engage. Um, it adds a really rich perspective to to your writing as well. So. As we jump into your your monograph that we'll be discussing, Paradise and Hell in Islamic Traditions, it, this also has some relation to an edited volume that you produced shortly before the monograph came out. So could you say a little bit about the relationship between the two books? Yes, well, and maybe I should start with uh, my first book because that really got me interested in... Yeah, yeah, uh, please. In, in the Muslim, if I may, yes, in the Muslim hell, and that kind of triggered the whole, the whole project on Islamic eschatology. So the the first book looked at uh, conceptions of justice and of punishment um, uh, under the Seljuks, the eleventh and twelfth century. And one of the things that I discovered, and I was, you know, uh, I, I think uh, um, inspired to do this by by Roy Mutahid at Harvard, um, was the, the the ways in which. Um, the imagination of hell and the punishment of hell somehow seems to mimic sometimes, or at least has a very co- kind of st- strong conceptual connection with actual state violent violence on earth. So I moved from a punishment as a, a as an instrument of of, of power and, and justice um, 
to uh, looking at punishment in the hereafter. So that got me started uh, on to hell. And uh, Jacques Le Goff's work on, on the birth of purgatory was important back then because he also put his finger on this on this um, you know, on these very uh, intri- intricate and interesting ways in which imagined punishment in the hereafter, uh, justice in the hereafter, correlates with uh, 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 with punishment and justice in this world. You know, the idea that there's a continuum between these two, that it's not a question of um, punishment, justice on earth first, and then in the far eschatological future, justice and punishment in the hereafter, but that these things should be considered as kind of parallel phenomena. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that got me started on, on, on the topic of hell, and I went to a, a very nice um, conference uh, organized in, in, in Göttingen, uh, I think some six years ago maybe, or seven, by Sebastian Günther and Todd Lawson, uh, which was called Roads to Paradise. Those, this was a conference devoted to, to Muslim ideas about uh, paradise and all kinds of different uh, traditions of, of thinking about the topic, so not just uh, theology, but also philosophy, mysticism, you name it, etc., um, and uh, when I was talking to Sebastian Günther during this, this conference, uh, he said, uh, or I said rather, well, you know, you have you did this beautiful conference on on paradise, but shouldn't there be a conference on hell as well? And that got me, uh, you know, that that stimulated me to organize myself a conference on the uh, Muslim hell in in Utrecht. This was in 2013, I think. And the proceedings or the book that you refer to is the outcome of this uh, conference on the Muslim hell. The idea was that, my idea was that the Muslim hell has been very much understudied um, in Western Islamic studies um, and that we should take it seriously also as a kind of interpretive um, uh, challenge uh, uh, and look at it closely. So um, this was the story to introduce, as it were, the edited volume, which is called uh, Locating Hell in Islamic uh, Islamic Traditions and was published last year with Brill uh, as open access, so everybody can actually just go to the internet and to Brill, Brill's website and read the whole the whole thing. Um, and then in parallel with, with that, I, I was awarded a major research grant by the European Research Council in 2011 for a project on paradise and hell. So I, I, uh, I supervised three PhDs and a postdoc um, and had myself time to work on aspects of Islamic eschatology and these Four people all produced very nice books themselves. Um, one wrote on um, Ishraqi philosophy and the conceptualizations of, of the hereafter and the uh, the world of image um, in the thought of Asuhrawardi and his school. Uh, somebody else wrote on a Sufi um, commentaries, tafasir, uh, dealing with um, descriptions of the hereafter. And another one looked at uh, Zucht, early Zucht traditions and early Zucht thinking about eschatology. So this was a very rich, rich background on which then to write my own book on paradise and hell, which is kind of a, an attempt to survey the entire the entire tradition, all the traditions of thinking about paradise and hell in Sunni Islam and uh, also in, in certain Shi'i traditions. I mean, there are limits to how much you can do in a book, but I think it um, it is the most, I hope it is the most complete uh, survey that we have of the topic so far. Yeah, I mean... Personally, going through it, it definitely gives uh, a flavor of comp- comprehensiveness, even though, as you say, it's it's impossible in a way to be totally comprehensive. Um, so before we jump into the book, one more sort of preliminary question. So you've talked a lot a bit about uh, engagement with scholarly communities. Um, and 
of course, the concept of the afterlife is something that, you know, a lot, dare I say, most people have thought about at some point in their life. And so I, I wonder, have you had any memorable conversations with just random people when it comes up that you're working on this project of, of heaven and hell? Have there been any kind of like memorable reactions that people have, have shared with you when you tell them about your work? Yes, uh, two things come to mind. Uh, one fairly common reaction is to say, well, why bother really? I mean, these are just figments of the imagination. Why, why should we study it and spend, spend so much time thinking about it? Um, I think I have more to say about this in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in due time, uh, Elliot. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the other reaction that was a bit funny, I thought, but, uh, but also I think uh, got me thinking was uh, uh, when I gave a talk about the Muslim hell to a bunch of uh, um, Jungian psychoanalysts. Um, this was at a, a conference of the Eranos uh, uh, group in, in Switzerland, um, you know, this, the famous uh, Eranos uh, group, which also goes back to, to Jung and people in his surroundings and Gershom Scholem and Mircea Eliade and so forth. So they still run these uh, these summer workshops um, at the Lago Maggiore in Switzerland. I was invited to come and talk about the, the, the Muslim netherworld, the Muslim hell. So I talked about the Muslim hell for about two hours or something. And then afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and said, well, you really have to be careful not to, to um, you know, this is, this, is, this is strong and dark stuff and you have to watch out for your <laughs> psychological well-being basically um and it's true i mean uh, i kind of laughed it off but uh, you know if if you look at this uh, this literature particularly the literature on, on hell it can be a very it, it is very violent and and uh, sometimes also obscene and not um well uh, not always a nice read but that also makes for, I think, uh, the importance of, of studying it. Um, I mean, sometimes the 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 um, comparison that comes to mind is that of of a horror genre, um, uh, and horror movies uh, are taken very seriously by by um, students of, of media culture. So I think, in the same spirit, we should take uh, representations of the afterworld of hell, but also of paradise very seriously. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the horror mm-hmm. movie analogy is. It's interesting. I'd never thought about it in those terms exactly before. So let's start with the title itself and the key words. You use paradise and hell. So could you say a little bit about what what you intend by those keywords, and then what other kinds of keywords from Islamic languages inform the types of conceptions that you investigate in the book? Yeah, well, it's a great question because... Uh, I thought about the title for a long, long time, like uh, all of us do, I guess, when, when we write books, when we get to ch- get the chance to publish a book. Um, and particularly because the most commonly used terms in, 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 in is Islamic languages are uh, al-Jannah wa-Nar, or Jannat and, uh, and, and Duzakh in Persian, I suppose. But Jannah and Nar are very important, and they translate literally, literally as garden and fire, of course. So why should we use paradise and hell instead and i think i have good reasons to do so because in my in my um perception these terms garden and fire in english don't capture um the the full range of phenomena that are discussed under the heading of, of jana and nar uh, i have a sense that jana and nar in much of the literature be, have become totally reified and ossified 
concept. So people don't actually think of a garden in terms of, uh, as in, you know, uh, green meadows and trees. They don't think of a fire that, that burns. Um, they think of a lot of other things as well. I mean, there's a lot of material culture in, 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 in Al-Janna uh, and in Anar. There are buildings. Um, uh, there are mountains also. I mean, the, the topography is, is, is much bigger than, um, you know, what you would think of when you hear uh, a garden or when you hear fire. So I think in, in that sense, it's justified to use paradise and hell instead of um, um, garden and fire because these terms sketch out a much broader horizon and garden and fire. So that was behind the choice uh, of uh, sticking to paradise and, and hell as the, because I mean, the, they, they do seem to, to belong to the Christian tradition more than to the, to the Islamic one. Uh, but anyway, I felt that uh, it, they gave a better sense of, uh, of the richness of, of thinking about these two places. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, yeah. You also asked about other key terms. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. The key, the dichotomy that that preoccupied me very much when I was writing the book is the dichotomy between between al dunya and al akhira. So uh, this lower world and the other world, or um, I mean, there again, um, it's very interesting to talk about various ways and possibilities of translating al akhira. Sometimes we'll see it translated as afterworld. Um, I always felt that other world was a much more appropriate um, translation because in many of the genres and traditions that I looked at, the idea was not so much that paradise and hell come after this world and are therefore afterworlds, but the idea seemed to be that they were other worlds that mirrored or somehow interacted very uh, intimately with the world of the here and now. So I, I prefer the translation other world. I mean, it depends, of course, on, on context and so forth. Um, but uh, to me, analytically, that that made more sense, and I was inspired in this, I guess, by by um, by um, a, a German scholar of religious studies who wrote about paradise in terms of Gegenwelt, you know, a, a world that is set against this world, uh, in the sense of you know a world to think with rather than a world to expect uh, to come at the end of time after we die. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. You you start the book off with sort of a, a way to underscore that idea of this man who is interacting with this uh, leaf from some other dimension. And I think, so you, you set that tone early, of course, yes. which is a, a provocative way to think about heaven and hell, which, right, I think a tendency is, you know, to assume that it comes later, but you, you show and you argue that the way Muslims have actually conceived of these things is actually... Uh, more dialectical and challenging over things like temporality and space. Yeah. And so if we go back to the notion of comparison, you mentioned these. there's key terms that relate to Christian tradition in particular kinds of ways. So when, as, as Muslims began to conceptualize the, the other world, what kinds of other religious and philosophical traditions were they interacting with? Um, well, they certainly interacted with the Quran, and the Quran itself, I suppose, is, is interacting. I mean, there seems to be a broad consensus about this now, interacting with a whole range of late antique traditions of think of Judeo-Christian traditions of thinking about about the other world. Um, uh, you know, if we look at the, the 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 entire history of Islam, of course, um, um, 
and there are philosophical influences, uh, a philosophical conceptualization of, of paradise and hell emerges uh, early on and then gets its first kind of um, formal um, uh, formalized uh, first is, it's first form in the thought of Avicenna and then the people who follow him there are um, tendencies to internalize paradise and hell in the mystical tradition um, and so on so I mean it's it's a uh, paradise and hell I think is fascinating it's a it's a fascinating topic because you if you if you follow it through the centuries you see how how from all these angles people are starting to appropriate um, the afterlife uh, and use it um, as a way to uh, to 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 frame their uh, well, I guess their deepest convictions, uh, philosophical, mystical, uh, religious, uh, or whatever. So it's it's a very complex question that you're asking, um, and much could be said. Sure. So, mm. so maybe one way we could focus on that is you you talk about you know is you're focusing on Islam, how the the Quran and Islamic tradition creates an original kind of vision of of heaven and hell. So could you say something about what what is it about the Islamic tradition or traditions that distinguish themselves from other ideas about afterlife conceptions? Yeah. Um, well, so this relates to the first chapter of the book, which is uh, dedicated to a paradise in hell in the Quran. And, and indeed, at the end of the chapter, I ask the question, so, you know, because Previously in the chapter, I talk a lot about um, uh, the ways in which Quranic descriptions of paradise and hell resonate with uh, texts such as the Apocalypse of, of Paul in the Christian tradition, uh, certain Jewish texts. So a lot of this seems seems to be shared. Um, so what then, if any, is the originality of, of the Quranic paradise and hell? Um, and to say, well, let me say one thing in the, in the beginning. So the question of originality, of course, is 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 is, is perhaps a bit anachronistic anyway, because uh, um, uh, the Quran, in, in my views, the the Quran simply is very much embedded in this late antique context. So uh, we shouldn't expect a completely. Uh, I mean, it would be impossible to to expect a, a fresh, a, a new break with a, a complete break with the tradition and something originally new but I, I do think that this idea of uh, of the synchronicity of uh, dunya and akhira and the and the and the, 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 the nearness the proximity of these two realms is very is a very pronounced feature of, of, of the Quranic message um, so for example I look at um, verses in the Quran that talk about the location of paradise and hell and there seem to be two competing competing traditions in the Quran one that locates paradise and hell beyond this world, and another that locates it, uh, locates them either on the world or somewhere at the nexus between this world and, and the other world. So this is the, the the sense of proximity that that I'm that I'm aiming at. Another thing is um, that um, you often find in the Quran uh, expressions that refer to the reward of the blessed in paradise, or indeed the punishment of the sinners in hell, as as things that are already happening or have already happened, and not just in in, in reference to. The martyrs, you know, I mean, there's the famous verse that talks about the martyrs not being dead, but um, uh, uh, enjoying the company of, 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 of their Lord right now. But there are other verses that talk about sinful people uh, of past, uh, past societies having received punishment in the year after. So again, I think, and this then, you know, it's kind of, kind of a, a theme that runs through the tradition. Um, I mean, the prophet goes 
on his famous night journey, uh, 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 goes to visit Paradise and Hell, and he sees people being rewarded and people being punished as as he goes there, which which very much suggests, and is indeed taken by some as proof that Paradise and Hell coexist with this with this world. Um, and I think this has its roots really in in the Quran. Um, we'll have to see if you know true Quran scholars will see anything in this and and agree. But uh, that's that's the that's the starting point, as it were, of the entire book. And then the, the other chapters really, I guess, just try to flesh it out uh, and show traditions that pick up on this theme, elaborate on it, and other traditions that uh, uh, go against it because these were these also existed, of course. Yeah, so in, in terms of under trying to get a sense of what Islamic conceptions of heaven and hell look like what, and what what occupies these spaces, if spaces is even, even an appropriate word, and perhaps you could say something about that, but mm. what, what kinds of beings and occupants um, do Muslims write about as uh, existing in these realms? Because you talk about it's more than just humans, there's other kinds of beings and perhaps organisms. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, in the in the hadith literature on 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 this, there there is a great uh, number of beings that that populate these these two uh, realms. So if we look at, at at that particular tradition, hadith literature, traditionalist literature on paradise and hell, um, there are um, there are uh, traditions that talk about different animals in both paradise and hell. Um, there are spiritual beings in paradise and hell. In paradise, of course, the uh, the famous um, huris or uh, the maidens of paradise and the angels. Um, in hell, there are the the angels of punishment, the, the zabania, hell's angels. Um, and then there are classes of damned and blessed uh, jinn and people in both uh, in, in both hell and paradise as well. So we have these three layers, I guess, that 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 sum sum it up: animals, spiritual beings, and classes of uh, damned in uh, in hell and classes of the blessed in, in paradise. And so how, you, you, you separate conceptions of heaven and hell into various time periods. Could you say a little bit about how and why these conceptions evolved throughout these discrete but overlapping time periods that you write about in the book? Yes, so this also refers to the traditionalist literature on, on paradise and, and hell. Basically, collections or compilations of of hadith about uh, paradise and hell. I, first of all, I think there's there's kind of a natural tendency for this kind of material to to grow over the centuries because it's stuff that is really gripping. It inspires the. It speaks to the imagination. So I see it, the kind of uh, accumulating accumulating thing over the centuries. Um, and you see that if you if you compare the earliest uh, collections, um, starting with uh, let's say the chapters on paradise and hell in in the uh, Kitab al Musannaf of Abd al-Razak al-Sanani, and then going on to Ibn Abi Dunya in the ninth century, and later authors Abu Nuaym al-Isfahani, al-Qurtubi in Spain, Suyuti, and then also in later centuries, and lots of these uh, lots of these texts exist and uh, and are there um, to be studied. You see that they grow over the centuries. So um, Abd al-Razak is still relatively uh, limited in uh, in the number of 
traditions that he reports, but then in Safarini, for example, in the 18th century Palestinian Hanbali collector, um, you know, it's literally volumes of, 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 uh, of, of traditions about paradise and hell. So there's this natural tendency for this stuff to grow, I think, which is also facilitated by, um, by the fact that the criteria for reliability uh, of hadith in the area of eschatology were never as uh, strict as in other areas of hadith. So legal hadith, I think, um, for example, had much stricter criteria. In the area of eschatology, there seemed to be a kind of general consensus that it's okay to use these hadith because they inspire hope and fear and inspire a pious way of life. So there was not really um, something to, to hold back the growth that I described. But still, at certain at certain moments in time, you have attempts to limit uh, limit the material and weed out the let's say the the, the crazier stuff. So yeah, you have periods of expansion and contraction, as I call it. And I would say that, for example, the uh, the the moment or the, the period of the so-called canonical collections in Sunni Islam around 900 marks a moment of contraction, um, because Muslim is very. Um, selective in, in, in what he accepts as, as sound hadith in the area of eschatology and Bukhari uh, also. Tirmidhi is the one of the uh, among the canonical collectors who's a bit more generous. Um, so this is contraction. But then, you know, in the centuries following that, you get people like Abu Nuaym al-Isfahani in the 11th century who, you know, where the, the, the material explodes again. And then you have another moment of contraction when, when you come to the Hanbalis of Damascus and under the Mamluks, who also were very interested in eschatology and collecting eschatolo eschatological hadith, but who start out with fairly limited collections. Um, and these collections then again grow over the centuries. So um, the uh, the Maqdisi family, the early, some representatives of the Al-Maqdisis in, in, in Damascus produce books on paradise and hell um, that are fairly short, but then you move on to Ibn Kathir, um, and Ibn Rajab al-Hanbali and others, and the material expands again. So I, I basically, I, I distinguish between uh, three periods of expansion, so up to the canonical collections, then up to, let's say, the 12th and 13th century, and then uh, after the 13th to, uh, to, to, the, to the modern period, and two moments of contraction uh, uh, around 900 and around, let's say, 1200. Uh, but I'm really, I think I'm the first to talk about the, the history of the genre in such terms. So it's a bit tentative. But uh, when I submitted the proposal for this book to, to the publisher, one of the reviewers said, yes, it's, it's very, all very interesting, but he should really um, try to develop a historical argument. So that, that got me uh, thinking about how to uh, historicize the, uh, the, uh, uh, the development of the genre. But now I've, it's a long answer. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. But <laughs> I've only talked about one genre, of course, in Islam, um, in Islamic religious literature that talks about paradise. And now we could also talk about all kinds of other genres, mystical literature, theological, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, I think this, the historicization is, is, is helpful because, it, you know, it helps the reader understand how ideas change and develop, expand and contract, like you're saying. If I could ask you one more question about the hadith literature, which is something that struck me personally, is you you do a, a, a search in the, the digital search for Al-Maktab al-Shamala, and you talk about these terms, the Jannah and Nar, and how frequently they, they occur, and mm. you, you, com you compare them. Could you, could you say a little bit about that and, and the significance of their proportional kind of occurrence? Uh, yes. 
Um, it's a table. Thank you for bringing it up because um, I'm starting to, uh, uh, I guess, like many other people in the field, I'm starting to really get interested in, in, in Arabic digital humanities and the the uh, the the opportunities that that they bring. Um, so what I did here is indeed I ran a search through various of the biggest um, collections of uh, eschatological hadith in Sunni Islam. So I started with Abdul Razak Ani, then Ibn Abi Shayba. I did Bukhari and Tirmidhi, and then also some of the later collections, Al-Tabarani's huge collection, and then Al-Mutaqi Al-Hindi in the, in the 16th century. And I was interested in the ratio between the terms Jannah and Nar and how they may uh, change over time. And uh, what we see is that um, Jannah becomes more uh, popular over time, but it's not the case that in the early uh, centuries, so in the, in the first and the second century, or I should probably say second and third century rather, it's definitely not the case that there is a lot of that Jannah is much more prominent than uh, than Annar. So the idea of the idea that there was a great certainty of salvation in the early centuries um, and that only later hell came into the picture, and this has been suggested by some other scholars, I think needs to be rectified. And going even further back, uh, uh, talking about the Quran itself, um, very interesting the discussion that's never really been fully explained or spelled out, I think, about how prominent a place paradise occupies in the in, in the Quran uh, in comparison to hell. So you have people who will say, oh, paradise is much more important in the Quran. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's, 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 it's about uh, salvation and kind of a positive, positive uh, uh, religious discourse that unfolds. And others who will say the opposite. And um, so I did a count myself and we can talk uh, endlessly about how you want to count these instances in the Quran because Jannah and Nar are not the only terms that are being used. Of course, there are other terms and there are descriptions that don't use uh, any names of, of paradise and hell, etc. But my, um, I, what I found was that hell is indeed much more frequent, not much more, but more frequently used or described in the Quran than, than paradise. And this is continued, I would say, in the earlier collections of Hadith. Uh, and only, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't really know when, I guess around the ninth century or later, the ratio shifts and paradise gets the upper hand. But, so, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a thought experiment, I must say. I, mean, I must say, I mean, with, with digital humanities, I think you really have to look at a lot, a lot of material to, to really make a point. And I looked at something like 10 collections. So maybe uh, um, somebody or maybe I should do it again and look at more texts. Yeah, I mean, it was it was provocative for me to to see the the table and have that kind of thing spelled spelled out. And so, actually, on the, on the note of hadith collections and who considers which hadith collections valuable and not so valuable, you also in the book compare Sunni and Shi conceptions of hell. So, could you say a little bit about how Shi conceptions of the afterlife the differ and are similar with Sunni conceptions? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, first of all, these early collections of hadith about paradise and hell um, begin with Shi'i contributions. So I talked about Ibn Abi Dunya and uh, Abdul Razak Hassanani. Around the same time or even earlier, we have the earliest dedicated collections to paradise and hell, and they, they were penned by, by Shi'is. So there was a, a strong Shi'i interest in this kind of thing from early on. Um, there are basic 
uh, uh, some well-known differences between Shi and Sunni conceptions of the afterlife. So famously, for example, God is, is not seen in paradise in Shiism, but rather in, you know, she, a light is seen, uh, whereas God is seen according to, uh, to the, the kind of material that you find in most Sunni collections. But at the same time, I, I, I think, you know, that the other world of paradise is really not any less sensual or corporeal in Shi Islam than in Sunni Islam. Um, in the, in, you know, in the, in the big collections of eschatological hadith of the later Middle Ages, I'm thinking of, uh, um, Al-Majlisi's, uh, two books on paradise and hell in, uh, Bihar al-Anwar. But I'm also thinking of um, someone whom I found really uh, very, very interesting, um, also a Shi'i collector from the um, from the 16th century called Al Bahrani, Hashim ibn Sulaiman. Sorry, 17th century Hashim ibn Sulaiman Al Bahrani. Um, there are many, many traditions uh, about the the, uh, the 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 plants, the uh, the kind of uh, in paradise and hell, the kind of garments that people in paradise wear, the kind of bodily pleasures that that people have. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't say that the Shi'i uh, conception of paradise and hell is any uh, less less materialist or or sensual or corporeal than, than the Sunni one. Uh, not if you look at these big collections that I talked about from the uh, period of the of the Akhbaris in the 17th century. But what is true is that um, in, in Shi'i theology, there's this influence of uh, Asuhrawardi's idea of the Alam al Mithal. The world of image, um, which is um, quite, uh, I think, prominent in in, in, in in later Shi'i thought, and which is not something that that the Sunni mutakalimun um, pick up. Uh, some of them, I think, do. Uh, Taftazani, for example, quotes uh, uh, followers of Sohrawardi uh, occasionally, but like the, the 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 standard kalam works of the later time of later times, al Eg and so on. Don't really don't really pick up the idea of uh, of a world of image. It's much more in in Sufi thought, and then I'm thinking of Ibn Arabi, of course, and uh, uh, among Shi'i theologians that the idea lives on and is uh, elaborated. So since since you mentioned Ibn Arabi and and Sufism, that was something I wanted to ask you about as well. So in terms of this, you know, very big genre of Sufi or mystical literature, how does mm-hmm. this genre distinguish itself from other genres. Um, well, there's also interestingly there are also Sufi-inspired collections of hadith about the afterlife. It's something that that you come across in the later centuries. Uh, my, I think it has to do with the fact that via Ibn Arabi, this idea of the alam al mithal or the the world of uh, image uh, makes it acceptable to talk about the particularities of paradise and hell again. So around the something like the 15th century or so, um, uh, there are these Sufi uh, Sufi um, Sufis who start to compile collections of eschatological hadith. So there's an Algerian called Abdurrahman Thaalibi in the 15th century. Then famously uh, the Egyptian Ash'arani in the 16th century who who does a kind of Mukhtasar, uh, uh, um, uh, a short version of Al Qurtubi's um, collection. And then in later centuries you can think of people like Abdul Ghani and Nablusi. So at a certain point in the development of, of, of Sufism, this seems to become more acceptable to also trade in these eschatologic, eschatological hadith. And I think it is because this idea of the world of image um, uh, makes, it, uh, makes it possible. And there the idea is that paradise and hell are neither spiritual, 
nor totally corporeal. They are somewhere in between. It's 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 the domain of the imagination, and the imagination is active somewhere in between the concrete and the abstract. Right. So um, uh, so that becomes uh, important in, in the wake of uh, Suhrawardi, and he actually takes it from Ibn Sina, from Avicenna, who seems to play with the idea, and then from Suhrawardi, you, you also find it in Ibn Arabi. Uh, independently of Sufrawadi, and from there on in, in Shi'i thought and in later uh, Sufi traditions. Um, but the history of Sufi thinking about paradise and hell is is very rich again, so I would have to talk about other and more things as well, if if you will let me. <laughs> yeah, so we, we we can come back to that as, as you like, since you mentioned the notion of imagination and images, that was something else that struck me about your your book as a, as a material object as well, as you include several images in the book. Yes. Um, was that something you had thought about from the onset of your research? Was that something that informed your research as, as you uh, developed your project? Could you say a little bit, about, little bit about the role of images in your book as well as your research? Yes. Yes, absolutely. With pleasure. Um, I think... Uh, it's a fairly rich tradition. There's a fairly rich tradition of <clears throat> of figurative representations of paradise and hell in uh, in Islamic visual arts. My initial idea had been to uh, do a kind of um, encompassing collection of these things and either put it into the book or do a separate publication. Um, the publisher then didn't really want it, I guess, and also the the person who commissioned it for a series, and that was the late Patricia Crone, said, "Well, then it would become, you know, even a much bigger book and maybe a different book." So she, she advised me not to include too many Im- images. Um, so I included, I include some twenty or so, but uh, um, it's very interesting stuff um, that you can cull from a vari- variety of, uh, of, 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 uh, of of traditions. So the the, the Falnames, the book, books of Omen, for example, include. Include um, representations of paradise and hell and the day of judgment. Um, in some of the Qisas al Anbiya collections, there are images uh, of uh, various prophets going to paradise and hell. Not just not just the prophet Muhammad. I mean, first and foremost, foremost Muhammad, of course, but also other prophets. Um, and it hasn't. This kind of material hasn't been collected in one place, as far as I know. I mean, there are some very um, valuable uh, and useful books which I mentioned in a footnote, I think, at the end of the introduction. But that is a book that remains to, to be written, and I hope that um, maybe some art historian with an interest in this can can do it, because I think it would be quite interesting. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the, the sheer number of footnotes in your bibliography, combined with the images, too, as you know, I think makes your, your book such a, a rich ground for people to take up future projects, which I'd like to ask you about um, in a little bit. But, I mean, following this line of you looked at so many different kinds of sources, and I I can only imagine, so looking at the process of writing the book a little bit, that you came to some unexpected twists and turns. And so what, what were some of the biggest surprises that you encountered either researching your book or thinking about it as you wrote it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, some of these surprises were, of course, simply the result of my previous ignorance of, of, uh, of some really rather basic things. But, you know, when writing 
and researching the chapter on Sufism, for example, um, uh, I only then did I realize that paradise and hell are really quite uh, um, rather detested and and very important, uh, perhaps even dominant Sufi traditions. So I thought, well, this must be a feast for Sufis and was expecting a lot of literature on it. But uh, and there's a certain period in the, I guess, suppose the classical period, if that's the right way of talking about it. People have issues with calling anything classical in Islamic intellectual history. But um, around the time of uh, uh, Rabia and, and, and these uh, Sufis from Baghdad, and she's the most famous example herself, there's actually a kind of contempt for paradise and hell as, as things that, uh, or realities that detract attention away from God and that therefore shouldn't preoccupy uh, the true seeker. Um, but then a little later, or perhaps even concurrently, you also have Sufis who start to internalize paradise and hell and talk about them not so much as places, but as inner states. So it creeps back into the tradition. And then, as I said earlier, um, with uh, with the uh, thinkers in the tradition of the world of image, uh, Ishraqi philosophy and Ibn Arabi, uh, paradise and hell uh, conquer or reconquer a place, as it were, in, in, in Sufism. But this whole, I mean, this variety of views about paradise and hell was something that really struck me. And then the other thing that I think uh, is worth mentioning that I would mention is that I, it increasingly dawned on me how important uh, the idea of the imagination was in this in this whole history of paradise and hell. Um, how uh, how it comes up with, um, I guess, Avicenna is really um, a very important uh, moment, and because he plays with the idea that in addition to a spiritual afterlife, there is an imagined afterlife, and this um, is picked up, I guess, by Sohrawayd and Ibn Arabi. But it become, be, seems to become very, very important. Um, so that was something that I, I hadn't fully expected, but uh, that I think uh, is relevant and, and exciting, I hope. Uh-huh. And, and fast-forwarding uh, several hundred years from the likes of Ibn Arabi and Suhawardi, what about, as you put the edited volume together and you're benefiting from the ideas of lots of different contemporary scholars, what were... I mean, I, I imagine any given chapter had an impact on, on your thinking, but what were some ideas in the edited volume as you put that together that stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely write all these chapters um, somehow ended also up inspiring uh, uh, sentences in, in my book. And I should also mention that um, um, the proceedings of the conference in Göttingen that I mentioned at the beginning will be uh, published by... Um, also by Brill, by, uh, and under the editorship of uh, Sebastian Günther and Todd Lawson and Christian Lauder. And um, I went to the conference and, and, and then later wrote to people whether they would be willing to share chapters, and, and many agreed. So I, I'm also very much in, indebted to the people who contributed to um, this Paradise volume. Um, from, my, from the volume that I edited, one thing that I learned a tremendous uh, <coughs> amount uh, from one article was by... Uh, um, uh, was Desmet's piece on Ismaili conceptions of hell, which is a complete—I mean, not a—it's com- not actually not a completely different world. It belongs, I think, very clearly into the philosophical tradition of thinking in Islam, but it's a different project from that from that of the Shi'i thinkers. Um, and many of these Ismaili authors are quite—they're um, uh, not obscure in the sense that they are unknown, but they are difficult to read. So, Asijistani, for example, I struggled with, and I think. Without uh, Daniel Desmet's uh, chapter on Ismaili conceptions of, of hell, 
in the volume that I edited, I don't think I could have written the pages I devoted to Ismailism in, in, in the book. So that was a very useful piece for me. Um, there are other great pieces uh, I recommend. I mean, it's open access. I, I don't, you know, it's uh, everybody has access uh, access to the volume anyway, so I'm not trying to sell anything. Um, I liked also Wim Raven's uh, chapter on popular cosmology um, uh, and hell in Arabic popular cosmology of the later Middle Ages. So he looked at a text uh, known or, or known as the Kitab al-Azama. There are several of, of such texts. This one is an, uh, an anonymous one probably from the um, later Middle Ages. And it's a, it is a companion piece to, to a piece he wrote in 1993 on paradise in the Kitab al-Azama. And it's really, um, it's not scholarly literature. I mean, the Kitab al-Azama, it's more like popular cosmology, but it gives a great insight into how the imagination really kind of runs, almost runs amok uh, in, in the tradition. Uh, um, very... Um, creative and very exaggerated also in, in many respects, but that's also a really good piece that, that got me thinking. So as, as I look at the edited volume and, and the monograph, of course the edited volume is broken up into sections and the monograph, I think, is broken up in a really helpful way to identify uh, different different threads and sort of look at dis- discrete discrete sections and so it, it made me wonder as I, as I often do when I read books for new books in Islamic studies. Have you had opportunities to use this book in a teaching context specifically? And would you have advice for the many uh, professors that listen to this podcast in terms of how they can incorporate the book either in a graduate seminar or undergraduate context? Yeah, um, well, I, I, I taught a class on Islamic eschatology at Harvard Divinity School when I was uh, a postdoc uh, at Harvard. But then... Uh, I, I taught the topic, I meant, but uh, then of course I hadn't written the book, so no, I haven't actually uh, used it in my own in my own teaching, even though I, I guest lecture on Islamic eschatology here and there. I think um, it depends a little bit uh, on whether it's an undergraduate or a po- or a graduate seminar, I suppose. But uh, uh, the middle chapter is kind of a summary of traditionalist eschatology. It's based on four major hadith collections. On the on on the other world, Qurtubi uh, Suyuti in Sunni Islam and Majlisi and Bahrani on the Shi'i side. So I think that would be the most um, uh, comprehensive summary of the the image of paradise and hell uh, in the uh, in the pre-modern uh, uh, tradition. So I think that would interest students. Um, and I know of uh, a friend who's an art historian that he. He has begun to use the last chapter um, of the book, book which talks about um, architectural uh, representations of paradise and hell in this world, um, and also about uh, ritual, uh, Islamic ritual, as uh, including elements of uh, pre-enacting paradise or hell on earth. So that would be a chapter, I think, that, that would be of interest to historians and scholars or students of Islamic material, material history and art history. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, as you said, uh, the, the book is divided into pretty separate uh, chapters devoted to separate genres, so a chapter on the Quran, a chapter on Hadith, a chapter on kind of pious ethical literature, um, a chapter on uh, theology, on philosophy, on Shiism and on Sufism. It's fairly conventional in that sense, I suppose. Um, I talked to Josef van S. once about this book and he said, well, the next step would be to write 
um, a history of paradise and hell that is not organized according to uh, two genres, but according really to centuries. Um, uh, but that would be a different project, I suppose, and maybe one that can only be written or be done once you have um, looked at the genres. But any of these, any of these chapters, I suppose, could fit into into a different classes taught on you know, different traditions. Uh, and so this this relates to one of the last things I'd, I'd like to ask you as we wrap things up. So in terms of current and future projects as they relate to this this one or depart from it or expand, etc., what, what kinds of things do you, are you currently working on and what kinds of things do you see yourself or would like to see yourself working on the next five to ten years? Um, well, I'm still still continuing, of course, on, on, on the topic of eschatology. Um, even though I think my, my tendency will be uh, to write kind of one book uh, on a topic and then move on to, to, to the next. The first book I wrote was on really on, on justice and, and, and mostly on legal traditions. This one is on eschatology. I have plans for different books in the future. But, but anyway, I continue uh, publishing on these things. And I've, I've, I've also launched a, a book series, which might be of interest to, to certain people at Edinburgh University Press, uh, together with David Cook, the scholar of apocalypticism. It's called Islamic Apocalypticism and Eschatology. And the first couple of um, um, uh, volumes will come out, um, I think, uh, well, not this year, but next year for sure. Um, one has appeared already, so I'm, I'm doing that. And I, I also think that there are a couple of, uh, of of articles, perhaps even a book um, that could be written that I would like to write about eschatology, about popular eschatology. There's this one text that um, that is fairly well known uh, because it's been edited several times and uh, and translated. It's called Daqaiq uh, al-Akhbar. That's the most well-known title. It's a Sunni popular eschatology of probably the 12th or the 13th century. Um there is a series of articles from the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken, by John MacDonald about this. Um, and I see a lot of people use these articles as kind of, um, you know, when they need a footnote about uh, Islamic eschatology. Uh, but the text is very, as I said, popular. Um, so it's not really an accurate representation, I think, of the learned uh, Hadith tradition, uh, not to mention of the philosophical and theological tradition. So I think that text deserves a, a fresh look and maybe a new translation uh, and, and commentary. So I might be doing that, but at the moment I'm doing something really quite different. I'm writing a short book in Dutch uh, on Mohammed, which is a challenge because Dutch is not my native language. I, I li- I've lived in the Netherlands since 2011. Um, but I thought, um, you know, since I'm here, I should uh, write something in Dutch. Um, uh, and then the next project, if 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 you care to know, is, is yes, uh, something different. Uh, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's again, uh, how, how these things go, I suppose, is that you work on, on a book and then there's one aspect that really interests you and you make another book of it. So this was the case with my first book when I uh, first looked at hell and then decided to write a book on paradise and hell. One of the things next to the imagination that I found really interesting in, 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 in writing this book on paradise and hell was the sensual aspect. Um, the sensory nature of the Muslim afterlife, which, you know, of course, has been um, the, the 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 reason for a lot of uh, uh, non-Muslim polemics against Islam, because you know um, uh, a lot of criticism has been leveled leveled um, 
against Islam for having such a, such a sensual, sensualist uh, notion of the act. But beyond that, I, I find the topic of the senses, um, the bodily senses and how they are involved in, 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 in uh, processes of world making, I suppose, very interesting. So I'm thinking about doing something on the senses in Islam. I have to see if, if that really can be converted into into a book or perhaps it will be, be an, an article. But uh, that's that's what I'm currently working on, sensory history of Islam. Well, cool. It's been really exciting, Kristen, to learn a little bit about your other projects and as well as to talk to you about the book. And I'm really grateful that our, our listeners will be able to you know, have this conversation and also that you've pointed them to the resources such as the open access version of the edited volume and the series you're, you're editing and future projects to expect. So thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to seeing your work uh, continue to come to fruition. Well, thank you, Elliot, very much for, for having me. I greatly appreciated the opportunity. I, I, I should also like to mention that if, you know, if your listeners want to um, talk about these things or exchange ideas or get in touch, they, they shouldn't hesitate, of course. I can be found very easily on the Internet, and I'd love to um, exchange ideas with, um, with people. So thanks for having me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Christian Lang, professor and chair of Arabic and Islamic studies at Utrecht University in the Netherlands, about his wonderful book, Paradise and Hell in Islamic Traditions, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Thanks for listening.